Gentlemen, soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the Great Crusade. Early this morning, the Allies began the assault on the northwestern coast of Hitler's European forces. Bonjour, I'm French author Clément Horvat and this is a new episode of Till Victory, a podcast about World War II and peace. Before we get to part two of my conversation with 101st Airborne veteran Tom Rice, a quick update on my book about World War II letters. Till Victory, the Second World War by those who were there is finally out in the UK and Europe. You can get it now from Pen and Sword Books, order it from your local bookstore or find it online. It will also be available sometime next month in America, but COVID has of course made it all very difficult for everyone, so you should be able to get it in the US from American publisher Casemate in late January. If you have already subscribed to this channel on your favorite podcast platform, you probably wondered why this episode wasn't released earlier this month like the other episodes did. Well, the first reason is that on the 3rd, I was busy releasing a short video documentary about Daniel Lyons, a British 6th Airborne paratrooper who met a young 5-year-old on D-Day and their reunion 75 years later. It's called Red Beret and Dark Chocolate and you can find it on YouTube or on Till Victory Facebook page. The other reason, and now we'll talk about the paratrooper you came here to listen to, the date of December 22nd made more sense. Because on this day, 76 years ago, Tom Rice was wounded in Bastogne, the Belgian city made famous by the long and heroic stand of the 101st Airborne Division, surrounded by German units during the Battle of the Bulge. So we'll talk about that, of course, but we'll pick up where we left off right after the Normandy campaign when the Screaming Eagles were getting ready for their next jump in Holland, Operation Market Garden. If you're new to the podcast and haven't listened to Tom's part one yet, in which we talk about training, D-Day and Normandy, I suggest you start with the beginning. This was, once again, a long and fascinating chat with Tom, and you'll see I won't be asking too many questions because Tom's not only a war hero, he used to teach history as well. So, when he starts talking about the past, you just sit and listen. Hello. Hello, Tom. This is Clément from France. Oh, yeah. Good for you. Thank you for calling. So, how are you these days? Uh, well, uh, things are coming along. We're avoiding with the uh, pandemic as best we can. Yeah. Wearing the mask and staying home. Mm. Uh, so, last time we, we, we talked a lot about uh, D-Day and Normandy. And um, we had to cut the uh, interview in two parts. But now we can talk about the rest of the war. Um, so after Normandy, uh, you jumped in Holland for Operation Market Garden. Was it a very different experience compared to what you went through in France? The experience was uh, similar, but yet it was different. Uh, the experience was similar. We, uh, we flew there and uh, they dropped us off, but they wouldn't come and pick us up. 
Mm. We had to get on our skateboards and skate across the English Channel to get back to England. (laughs) 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 So so there were some similarities, but uh, while we were in England uh, and had returned from uh, France uh, in late July, we started getting replacements for the fellows that we lost. Mm-hmm. So we had 38% casualties. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started to receive those fellows, and they didn't fit too well because they represented a person who had been killed, had been injured, who uh, was in the hospital and never returned. So they heard all the war stories about them, and uh, that frightened them pretty much because they had never seen any combat at all. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that is one of the major differences. So we started our regular routine of army drill again, and we had uh, all kinds of uh, combat situations to contend with. So we had 18 parachute jumps put in front of us before we went to Market Garden. Mm-hmm. I could name them all, but uh, there's no sense to it. But I remember uh, two of them. One was called Lynette One, and the other one was called Lynette Two. Mm-hmm. And they were around uh, Belgium and southern France. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, so we trained and trained and trained and and uh, we got those guys as best oriented as we could. And then uh, the uh, infantry forces weren't moving on the front line. So uh, when they began to move, well, we, uh, uh, for the most part, canceled uh, 17 of the uh, parachute drops. We 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 uh, had them all written up on paper, but we didn't go to the airport. But I think number sixteen and number seventeen and eighteen, we did go to the airport and uh, got ready. And particularly number eighteen, uh, which was a market garden, we didn't have too much orientation to that. I had a map, a great big map. I've had it folded up into about uh, eight by ten and in my pocket. And uh, the uh, military forces on the front line began to move again. And uh, we dropped in from there uh, at Maryfield Airport in England. Mm-hmm. We flew, I think it was about 76 minutes flight. I'm not sure that. I got it written down somewhere, but I can't find it at the moment. Mm, yeah, sure. So uh, on September 17, 1944, we went to the airport, and all the previous times we didn't get ammunition, so I knew we weren't going to go because they gave us no ammunition. Uh-huh. On the September 17th uh, at Maryfield Airport, we got ammunition, and I knew it was gold from that point on. Mm. We had pretty much the same fellows that jumped with me in uh, Normandy as we did in Holland, except for the new replacements. 
Mm. And I always jumped number one. So I jumped at uh, 1,250 feet, and uh, I was going up instead of coming down. I got into a thermal from all of the other aircraft that were ahead of us, and and uh, that kept me at a particularly elevated uh, uh, altitude until I worked my way out of it. There's not much I could do but just ride it out. Mm. And as I was coming down, I got to about 500 feet and noticed a house that was uh, across the, the road and a large field from Heathwick Castle. You know where Heathwick Castle is? No. No, huh? Okay, well, it was there. There were two drop zones uh, in Holland. Uh, they Both of them were uh, parallel, but they were cotangent. One was touching the other. The first drop zone was A1, and then... A few kilometers north of that uh, was uh, drop zone A. Mm -hmm. And uh, those two drop zones were parallel to a highway from uh, uh, St. Hurdigenbosch or Heathwick to Vegel. So it would be easy for us to get from the drop zone onto the the highway and then uh, rush the best we can as fast as we could to get to uh, Vegel. Okay. And uh, my jump was good and clean, except that I went up instead of coming down. And then finally, when I got uh, out of the thermal, at about 500 feet, I noticed I was heading toward a house, a thatched roof house. And I thought if I hit that thing, I'd go through the roof and into the kitchen. Uh, But... uh, uh, I was able to maneuver away by manipulating that parachute just a little bit. You couldn't do too much with it. But I landed uh, in a garden right next to that house, surrounded by a steel picket fence. And I just missed the steel picket fence by about uh, a foot and a half or so. And uh, I made nearly a standing landing but went down to my knees and it was a cabbage patch. And uh, the muzzle of my submachine gun had dirt jammed into the chamber, so I couldn't use it for the most part until I cleaned it, and I couldn't clean it for a couple of days uh, hence from there. Huh. So I didn't know uh, where I was, and I made it over toward the Heathwick Castle parallel to a road that goes from St. Hurdigan-Bosch to uh, Bagel and got on that one. They had a mortar with me, and I I, there was about uh, 10 kilometers, and I ran most of the way. That darn mortar on my back. It was a pretty heavy thing, so I was pretty much by myself. Mm -hmm. And I was getting close to the thousands of Dutch people were standing on the highway. They're offering us some kind of a uh, liquor drink and gingerbread. Mm-hmm. The gingerbread was about uh, one uh, inch by one inch and about 12 inches long. 
And uh, I didn't take any any bit of it because I was cautious and suspicious. And when I got into Vegalay uh, Center City Plaza, it was absolute chaos. Mm -hmm. The whole town was out milling around in that uh, uh, city city square. And a woman came up to me and asked me how many American troops are here, and I gave her an absurd number like a few hundred thousand or so, you know. Mm. And uh, after uh, about an hour of milling around and talking and doing nothing and waiting for some orders because there were so many people there, we couldn't get any orders to the guys. Uh, first sergeant came to me and uh, told me to take my squad to uh, one section of the city and, and uh, set up a, uh, uh, a blockade or the highway that led right into Vega from Heathwick, a railroad that crossed it perpendicular, and uh, we got under the rock scars that evening and stayed there uh, for the most part till the morning. And in the morning, a, a German ambulance came up within about a quarter of a mile of us and outported, out of that ambulance poured a German rifle squad so some of the guys were alert to that, and uh, they shot the thing up. And that's uh, after we cleared the uh, city square, we were just milling around trying to find out what we're supposed to do, and time passed fast, so I'm not sure what uh, what I did do and what I didn't do, but mm -hmm. uh, we had orders, I guess, to go back to uh, the area of Heathwick Castle, and uh, get in behind some of the German paratroopers that were uh, at St. Odin Road. And uh, they had uh, come down the highway uh, from uh, St. Odin Road into uh, a large pasture lands and a semi-swamped semi area in case that river overflowed. It was a parallel a, a river called the R.R. River, A.A. River, paralleled the uh, roadway from uh, St. Odin Road to Heathrow Castle. So they were in between that good cover and, and uh, were going down to try to uh, attack us from the front. But uh, we got orders that C Company, like I was in C Company, the third platoon was going to go up that uh, road that we came down there when we first landed and get in behind uh, the Germans and set up a blockade. And then A and B Company would be, for the most part, in Vago, uh, uh, and they would move in the direction of which the Germans were coming. So we were the death pan and they were the boom. Okay. And uh, after... Uh, Closing in on them as best we could, we lost a couple of men. A and B company lost a couple of men sweeping that area, and and uh, I think we captured a couple hundred of them there. But they were neophytes for the most part, and they came from so St. Old Road where they had a junk school, so they had to hustle them out of there and get them into the fighting as quickly as they possibly could. So we got those guys under control. And what we did with them, since we're so far behind enemy lines, I don't recall, well, uh, other than just disarming them, that that was it. 
Mm-hmm. There's too many other things to do. But uh, as we were in Vago, uh, I think a squad from the first platoon went back up toward Heathwick, led by a uh, platoon leader. His name was Bill De Huff. And uh, he had a, a Dutchman who was on a bicycle ride out about a half a mile in front of him and note what was going on with the Germans coming down that road facing uh, the uh, 3rd platoon going up the road. So when the 3rd platoon uh, met those Germans, we routed them out. And uh, evidently they went into the... Uh, between the R River and the St. Old Road Road and tried to alert them. I don't know how successful that was, but coming up, some of the guys were crawling in ditches, and uh, and uh, uh, as we got toward the uh, uh, canal uh, that uh, represented the R River, uh, a couple of the guys were shot there. A guy by the name of Arnold Kromholz was killed. And, uh, and, and there was a German colonel and a motorcycle driver came roaring down the road and the Frank Carpenter saw him and shot them both. And he got on the motorcycle and went roaring around having fun driving that thing up and down the road for <laughs> the most part as he was driving the Germans out. So there was a lot of chaos going on. Therefore, time we had to cross the uh, river uh, with a bridge, and we couldn't do it because the bridge was raised. Mm. So we were all target practicing with steel cables to try to break them. We couldn't do it. So one of the fellows got down into the uh, uh, deep into the bank of the river and found a a, 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 a rowboat. And he didn't have an orb, so he used the butt of his rifle to roll across the river. And uh, he lost his rifle about midway and made it across. And uh, I believe he was the one that was able to lower the river uh, uh, bridge. So we all crossed there and set up a a uh, blockade while A and B Company swept up. And they pushed them into us. And uh, Captain Phillips was you know, right near me, and he told me to put mortar ammunition on the Germans that were backing up into us. And I told him I had no ammunition, so he got some for me and, and fired one round. They were in pretty close, and I was a little bit frightened by that some of that ammunition might explode in right in the middle of the troops that uh, we were uh, uh, trying to... Uh, uh, not engaged, but uh, we were our own friendly troops. But they were successful, and we got uh, we captured most all of those guys and disarmed them. And I'm going back again. What to do with them? I don't know. They call what happened to them after that. Four hundred of them, for the most part. Wow. What happened after that? And, let's see what happened after that. Uh, oh, we. Uh, we had orders to go towards Shindale, S-C-H-I-N-D-E-L, and attack along the road. It was getting dark, and uh, as we approached uh, uh, Shindale, in the fork of the road, there was a quad German 44, uh, 20 or 40 millimeters on a chassis, four of them mounted. And uh, 
a third, a third platoon of Company C was the point, and the uh, the point of the point was uh, the second squad of the third platoon of Company C. So the Germans had a habit of firing tracer bullets over our heads, so we'd get up and just continue to walk, uh, and then they would fire low. Mm-hmm. So they pulled that trick on us too many times, and we got wise to that. So on the way to Schindel, we were aware of that. And and the uh, tracers were going over our head, and the colonel up in front of us said, you guys keep on going, uh, and don't hit the ground again, uh, going over our head. In the meantime, they started firing low, and they got, they got eight of the guys on the uh, uh, second squad. So we were held up a little bit there. So the Germans knew we were coming down that road and approaching the fork of the road. And, and Captain Phillips told me to set up a mortar and fire on it. I had used up the ammunition, so he got some more for me. And uh, off the uh, uh, road, which was uh, a little bit elevated, uh, I set up the mortar. And you know, we used the mortar as an attack weapon instead of a defensive weapon. And uh, we couldn't use the bipod and sights and all that stuff, so we just elevated the uh, motor tube and fired one, and it was long. Fired a second one, it was short, and the third one was in it pretty close. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, the, the uh, German quad had fired three tracer bullets at our position. Evidently, they could see the, uh, the blast coming out of the tube of the mortar, and they aimed at that, and, and I was right next to it, and that, that shell went just right over my head, about six inches. Mm. It scared the big ones out, and they came screaming in, and, and uh, where it landed beyond me, I don't know. But uh, there was uh, a cow pasture right nearby, and uh, the cattle were moving away from it, and, and one of them defecated there right near the mortar site where we set it up, and I laid the ammunition in the mortar in the in that defecation and didn't know it. So we were stinking and firing and doing all kinds of crazy things. <laughs> and where where did you go next? Uh, we got toward Scheindel and uh, we routed the Germans out of that. And we had orders to go toward Urdi, and it's still late. And then, uh, uh, we got into Urdi. And uh, we took over a windmill, and one of my one of my buddies was uh, hurt there at the windmill. <laughs> he was rescued by the, uh, William uh, D. Huff and carried it out for the most part. Over there, yeah, there were a lot of sand dunes around the area, and then an airport nearby. And I set up a mortar position that was close to the railroad. And the Germans were coming down the railroad, and evidently a tank commander saw the mortar position, and uh, uh, my gunner, uh, Van Buskirk, was uh, 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 just standing in a mortar pit, and a shell landed about, a uh, mortar shell landed about 30 yards in front of us, and a piece of shrapnel came at him and hit him right in the back, and that cut him. Uh, for the most part on the back and, and another piece cut his arm so I bandaged him up and sent him back to the first aid and I didn't see him for the rest of the war 
And we got up and out of our position and just moved around trying to locate and find the Germans. Uh, <clears throat> I was just walking around a sand dune and I noticed that a Lieutenant Muir and a Sergeant Leffer bodies were lying near the top of the uh, sand dune. And uh, uh, Lieutenant Muir's jacket was wide open and he had a gold chain around his neck and a coulon. You know what a coulon is? No, no, I'm not sure. It was a piece of gold uh, about an inch and a half by two inches. And it was solid gold, 99%. Okay. And it was exposed. So uh, I tucked it back into the shirt and buttoned his shirt up. And, and uh, he, was, uh, he was lying there face up and dead, along with Sergeant Luther. And uh, I went from there around the nose of a uh, sand dune and uh, with the... Uh, uh, by the name of Howard Miller running in front of me, and then I was next, and then Captain Phillips was behind me about 10 or 12 feet, coming around the uh, same point from an opposite direction was the German paratrooper. He was the biggest guy I had ever seen, and uh, uh, he was armed and ready for a fight, and uh, Sergeant Miller ran right into him. They were not looking where they were going, evidently, and uh, they collided right at the point. And uh, Miller took off his, uh, kicked off his helmet, undid his wedding, and uh, put up his fist. And the German did the same thing, and they had a fist fight there for about ten seconds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, after after the uh, they start they stopped the fight, the German got away, and they ran through a bush and. And uh, I think he was a colonel, and uh, he evidently was lined up with a guy by the name of Zarelli, Nick Zarelli, and uh, I I couldn't shoot the colonel because uh, if I had missed missed him by giving uh, a short uh, fire firepower distance, I would have hit Nick Zarelli. So I didn't fire upon him, so the German colonel put six bullets in Nick Zarelli's arm, and uh, he got away. So he sent uh, Nick Zarelli back to first state, and I never saw him uh, until the war ended. Thank you for sharing this, Tom. Mm-hmm. So we moved from there to uh, the guard orders to move to Eden because the Germans had broken through Eden. And uh, we had to rescue that uh, area as quickly as possible as they could. That's the only uh, reason they gave us for breaking off is that Uden was under German pressure. So we got up there as quickly as we could by truck and then walked another half a mile to a mile into Griel, D-R-I-E-L. And it was a uh, small village that we went beyond a few scattered houses and the highway butted perpendicularly into another uh, roadway that was uh, elevated, and it really was a, uh, uh, a, a railroad that led right into Arnhem. So we were, for the most part, in a, in a corner where the Scottish Black Watch Regiment was uh, uh, occupying. 
Yeah. And uh, evidently, we were supposed to relieve them, and in doing so, they uh, uh, played their national anthem on bagpipes and marched out of there with full field equipment, except some of their uh, uh, vehicles. And they left a scout car and a, a six-pound uh, cannon that was pointed uh, in the right direction, and the Germans ran a tank just on the other side of the uh, highway that was perpendicular to the uh, 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 railroad back and forth and kept us awake all night. It was the freakingest, noisiest thing you could ever imagine. And uh, there was a small gap in the uh, roadway, and the tank was, uh, for the most part, poised there. And a Frank Carpenter went up to the six-pounder and started to... Yeah, trying to find out how it was to be fired. It, it was already loaded, but he didn't know how to fire it. So he started hitting all the levers and switches and, and things that he couldn't. And, uh, it was not bore-sighted to that little, uh, opening where the German tank was, but it was, uh, it shot maybe 30 or 40 feet above it, hit the uh, bridgeway. So he was then able to, uh, looked down the bore and uh, found the right levers and turned the bore down toward the patch uh, where the German tank was and fired there, threw another shell in it and fired and he hit the tank. And he got a silver star for that, but there's some confusion about uh, someone, one of the other troopers from, I believe it was a two parachute came alongside of that roadway perpendicular to the uh, uh, railroad and, and saw the tank and fired a bazooka shell and got and knocked out the tank. So that's been confused for years and no one pays any attention to it anymore. So after quite a few days, uh, uh, we settled in and relieved them and, and we ran patrols out from, uh, that little, uh, uh, enclave that we had called the, uh, uh, let's see, we called it uh, Coffin Corner. And when we came in to Coffin Corner, after we left the highway uh, and, and the trucks, uh, we rushed up the highway and got in behind the uh, Germans coming over the dike that was perpendicular to the uh, uh, railroad track. <clears throat> and uh, I was crossing a barbed wire fence and the Germans threw up a shell about 150 feet high and about 100 yards away from me. And the apple orchard was, for the most part, useless and all broken down trees and, and branches that were on the ground and wasn't useful at all. Uh, so I got, I got stuck uh, right on the top of that barbed wire fence. The only thing I could do would be to throw my hands up over my head and and uh, make like a like a dead tree, and I did. And I'm sure they saw me, but they didn't do anything about it and didn't fire. When that flare went out, I got off that barbed wire fence as quick as I possibly could, tearing up my pants and whatnot on the way down. Mm-hmm. So we sat up there for for a week or two, and and uh, <clears throat> uh, we ran patrols to uh, 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 the the island crossing of the lick and the Wall River. And uh, uh, the Germans could see us, 
they knew where we were and where the Black Watch was. So they fired upon us occasionally. And, and uh, I had the mortar position out in the open now because there were a lot of trees around, old broken down trees. And, and I couldn't let a mortar shell go through those, otherwise they would explode them. So I laid all kinds of branches and leaves around the gun, but the Germans detected that. And, and they threw in some artillery and, and they didn't hit my motor, but they hit the ammunition. And, uh, it didn't explode any, but it just disrupted the carrying bag that they were in. They just ruined the canvas on it. So after a period of time, they were living in the, uh, barn. Uh, we had British, uh, 10 and 1 rations. Mm-hmm. And before we got any 10 and 1 rations, we were pretty hungry, so we waited to Griel little village, and uh, we took what we could and ate what we could until we got the 10 and 1 rations from the British, which took about uh, three or four days. It would, uh, was 10 and 1, one man for 10 days, or, or uh, oh. Uh, five men for two days or two men for uh, multiple multiplications of that. And, and uh, uh, we left after uh, a period of time. I don't know. It was probably around uh, Thanksgiving that we left. So, so from September 17th to about Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. we were there in Holland. We were only supposed to be there for three days, but we were there for about two and a half months. So that's the major portion of what I remember uh, that uh, took place in uh, in Holland. Okay, and, and then you were uh, rushed to uh, Belgium to stop the uh, German counterattack in uh, December uh, on December sixteenth. From, from uh, Holland, we went to uh, France. Okay. We returned to uh, Marmelon Les Grand. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it was a larger village than Marmelon and Le Petit. And uh, uh, <clears throat> we had lost a number of guys there and had to get replacements, but they were slow in coming. And and, and uh, I, I would walk from Marmelon Le Grand to Marmelon Petit and watch the railroad train come in and watch French families meet their husbands or, or their relatives that were held by the Germans. And that was kind of a... Uh, interesting thing to watch. Uh, we could hear the train coming down the track, so it was a short walking distance, so I could be train there before it went through the station and watch what was going on, how we're grieving and, and everything that took place there, which was uh, rather interesting to see. So we were there for, uh, it's getting late in uh, uh, December, not really late, but uh, about midway in December, and uh, the Germans broke through one, one of their operations in trying to capture Bastogne. Bastogne had seven major highways that converged in that area, so they had to uh, capture Bastogne to take over those highways, and the idea was to get to Antwerp as quickly as possible to get in between the British and the American armies. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, for the most part, put a blockade against the, the uh, German 15th Army, which was in uh, northern Holland. And that was a uh, that was a poor deal for, uh, uh, by way of the, uh, uh, the strategy that was made because 
we had no way of getting at them because the, the Germans were protecting them. And uh, they reformed their uh, military uh, activities very quickly uh, just north of us and came barreling down on us. And, and, and what do you remember of those days uh, in Bastogne? What did I remember about Bastogne? Yeah. Yeah, oh, okay. We were going to have a football game with the 82nd Airborne Division on uh, January 1st, I believe it was, to emulate the uh, Rose Bowl parade game. But it never did happen. Uh, we were uh, called out of uh, Bastogne by the uh, 18th or 19th, and we trucked up as close as we possibly could to Bastogne and uh, got out and walked the rest of the distance in the Bastogne, led by Colonel Kennard. And uh, uh, we were headed toward Warden, uh, Belgium, uh, or, uh, yeah, I think it was Belgium, Warden and uh, Colonel Kennard discovered we were going uh, uh, too, too far east and south. So we had to reroute ourselves and go more toward ne uh, uh, Nessie and uh, another small community there. And we, we did that. We outposted our, uh, our area there for the most part until about the... Uh, Till I was uh, till I was wounded and left the area about the 22nd of uh, December. So we were running patrols out, and I had been taking a lot of patrols in and out, and, and uh, I could I could do the patrol for the most part. So on one of the last patrols that I took out, well, it was the last patrol I took out was to uh, uh, scout out the German presence in the little village of Nessie near Margaret and Warden. And uh, I had three or four guys with me. Uh, one, John Thomas, was my number one scout. Number two scout was Arthur Texier. He was next to me. And, and then a getaway man was uh, John Welch. And we came down a long slope hill uh, running perpendicular to a decomposed granite road that ran from my right to my left uh, toward a fork in the road. We got on the uh, decomposed granite road and turned left and went to the fork in the road. And this is a deep valley that Bastogne was located. And uh, <clears throat> uh, I sent uh, uh, John Thomas up the left fork of the road, crawling in the ditch that, that was, uh, for the most part, heavily laden with ice and snow. And uh, there was a building that was about five stories high, and there was a sniper in the uh, top story of the building. And uh, I'm sure he was watching us, and he knew we, he knew we were coming. They paid no attention to uh, John Thomas. Uh, the sniper was after me because I was leading the patrol. And the idea there was to hit me in the obligato, uh, right between the neck and the shoulder. And uh, when you get hit there, you're taken out in, in a hurry. You've got no control over anything. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
I fast to John Thomas up the left fork. He was cracking through the ice and snow, and I noticed 50 yards ahead of him, a machine gun was uh, laying in a pretty good pattern in that ditch. And uh, I figured, well, the Germans are going to let us, all of the patrol, get all bunched up in that ditch and then fire upon us and get us. And I sort of realized that uh, that they were going to fire uh, tracers over our heads so we could get up and walk into it. I'm not sure about the tracers because I was too busy with other things. But <clears throat> as I was down uh, uh, really low on the uh, opposite side of the road where a uh, haystack was located uh, on the road right at the fork, the uh, a, a sniper saw me and uh, he fired one round at me and, and he thought my uh left knee was my head and uh he he hit me just above the left knee and it uh i i was convinced that the thing was broken and i had to get up to uh determine whether it was or was not and find some security uh right near a haystack on the opposite side of the road so uh, uh after the firing uh, took place and hit me I told John Thomas back and t told him to come past us and take the right fork of the road and uh, find his way in. And uh, John Welch was way behind us, and he was a getaway man. And he was evidently observing everything. And I had, to, I had to get up to find out what was going on to see around me. And uh, I knew I was hit, and I had 18 sorrets of morphine that uh, the company commander then, Lieutenant Bennett, gave me, and uh, just in case there was a problem. So I gave uh, the uh, packet of morphine to uh, Arthur Texier. I said, give me a shot of morphine. He didn't. And I uh, <clears throat> told him to go on in, take the morphine with him, and uh, make your way back to the and signaled to John W. Welch what you're going to do. So he did that. Now I had to get up to check that leg. And as I did, I put my weight on the left leg. And it wasn't broken, but it was uh, bleeding pretty bad. And the temperature was extremely low then. And uh, I, my right arm swung up in front of my face. My helmet came off. My Thompson submachine gun fell out of my hand because I got hit with another shot uh, from the sniper in the uh, uh, right radius of my right arm. And so I dove for that haystack and, and uh, I bounced off of that thing because it was so down so low and so rotten and so hard. And I guess I was there for hours. Uh, Arthur Texier went on in. John, Tom, uh, John Thomas had uh, taken the fork of the right fork of the road, whether they met or not, I don't know, but they made it in okay. And uh, uh, Welch saw behind me what was going on, so he made it in. So I'm out here by myself all alone, and, and uh, I was wondering what was going to happen and what should I do. Uh, two things crossed my mind. Number one, they were going to set out a patrol to get me, and number two, uh, they are going to send a, uh, a patrol to capture me and bring me in. Neither one of those happened. But a couple hours later, 
uh, Welch came up the road uh, from behind me, crawling in the ditch, and uh, he got opposite me, and I signaled him, and I told him, I'll roll out on the road, and you give me the butt of your rifle, and you take the muzzle, and, and I'll push and pull, and you do the same thing, and we'll make our way back. So it took, it took us about an hour to get back in. So we were out about a half a mile to three quarters of a mile in front of our line. And uh, we made it in. There was a jeep evidently there waiting for me because they had got the word that I was out there for uh, during that time. And they uh, needed a rescue, and I got it done. Uh, <clears throat> Welch came out and rescued me, so <clears throat> I was lucky in regard to what he did. And he got a uh, uh, a cluster on his medal for coming out and rescuing me. <clears throat> And from there, I went into uh, Bastogne, was on the nunnery for uh, a couple of days until Patton broke through. And I believe I was sent to the 121st Field Hospital in Belgium. I'm not sure of those numbers, but I think that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And from there, uh, they uh, cleaned up my wounds and and uh, bandaged me up. And, and uh, <clears throat> then... Uh, uh, I was sent to uh, the American Embassy in uh, Paris, and uh, things that uh, the wounds got infected, so they cleaned them up again, and they sent me to uh, England, and, and I was in England for about two or three, two or three weeks, uh, getting some therapy and healing taking place in. Uh, uh, a, a surgeon came in one day and told me that uh, they were going to send me to ZI, Zone of Interior, which uh, we're going to send you back to the United States. And I said, I'm not going to go. Mm-hmm. I filled the air with sulfuric fumes of interesting words that he probably had never heard before. <clears throat> and uh, he told me he's going to send me out of here in three days. And in two and a half days, I was gone. and took me another three weeks to catch up with the, the uh, regiment which was uh, uh, moving toward uh, Birch's, or rather, yeah, Birch's Garden. Mm. So they got settled in Birch's Garden, and when I arrived uh, about the middle of May, I think it was, I, I worked into the company without any trouble at all. Uh, I couldn't carry a lot of supination and pronation on my right arm. The trigger finger was okay, and... and uh, we started uh, the old military drill again, and then they worked out a point, a system of points for going home because war was winding down pretty much. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, I had, I think, 98 points for all the combat because I, I uh, joined the uh, 101st Airborne when it uh, was brought into being. It, it, it emanated from the uh, 6th Wisconsin Infantry Division and was tagged for airborne, so it became the 101st Airborne Division mm. and stayed with them all the way. And uh, then uh, we, we were stationed around uh, Bridges Garden for a period of time, and uh, they didn't know what to do with it other than close order drill. And the close order drill got to be obnoxious. Guys were getting in trouble and drinking and uh, creating all kinds of problems. They were letting off an awful lot of steam from all that combat. We had, I had 195 days of combat by this time. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the points I had uh, uh, would uh, get me home. 
And so I made that choice along with a lot of other guys. And we got new, new recruits coming in. And those fellows had zero points for the most part, or maybe 10 or 12 points. And so they were tabbed for German occupation duty. And uh, we, we the high pointers, we wanted no part of that. So we took the option and, uh, and uh, went to Marseille and caught a, caught a, uh, a military transport out. And from there to Norfolk, Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia to San Pedro, California, and then home. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> But did you get to see? Uh, did you get to see Hitler's uh, eagle's nest? What was it like? More or less, it's a great. Uh, it's it's a, a, a monadnock. Uh, it's a large, very elevated plateau in the Bastogne, and uh, Berchtesgaden. Right? It, huh? In Berchtesgaden. Yeah, yep. and uh, the 506 beat us there. So they were occupying the area and had, uh, for the most part, uh, a lot of fun uh, doing all kinds of crazy things. And one of the things that uh, the uh, Third Army decided to do was to have an Olympics. Mm. So the Third Army, Army, Third Army Olympics was organized, and uh, uh, we trained, uh, for the most part, on our own around Purchase Garden, and then were sent by truck to uh, Nuremberg. And the... Uh, Uh, Olympics took place there in Nuremberg. I ran the two miles and I got second place. One guy by the name of O'Reilly from Bay with 502 Regiment beat me. But I got even with him later on after I got home because he went to UCLA and I went to San Diego State University and, and I was coaching track and field at the, at the university and I organized a uh, cross country run and he appeared there. And I knew it, so I was going to make a good point to beat him, and I did. <laughs> yeah. um, do you remember um, how you felt when you heard that war was over? What went through your mind? I think a, uh, one of the officers that had a group of us uh, together in a tent, and he told us the war, for the most part, was uh, for the most part uh, uh, wound down and. Uh, uh, You guys are going to go home soon, et cetera, et cetera. You have some choices to make. And, and uh, I had a bottle of champagne in my hand, and I yelled out, Finny Laguerre, and uh, take, took a drink of uh, champagne and got rid of the bottle. That's the only thing I remember about that incident. <laughs> Must have been something. Um, and what, what, what did it feel like to come home after all this time? Was it easy? Yeah, it was easy. Uh, <clears throat> I walked the same old way from, uh, you know where Coronado is? Yes. Okay. I took the ferry. I took. I was on my own in my uniform with my duffel bag, and uh, uh, I only lived about four blocks from the streetcar, and uh, took the streetcar to uh, H Avenue and, uh, and uh, then walked the rest of the distance. And... and uh, Uh, it was easy. I recognized everything. It was kind of dark, but I recognized everything that was uh, uh, happening in Coronado, which was nothing. Uh, for the most part, Coronado was, uh, was a destination because of the Hotel Del Coronado, and that hotel was turned into an officer recreation area. And uh, there were not too many civilians there, but mostly military personnel. Mm. So I was uh, back home and... Uh, 
and uh, a short uh, uh, 35-minute walk for the most part. And then uh, within three weeks after I got home, I was back in college. I went right back to San Diego State, finished up my two years for my degree, and then did a fifth year for a teaching credential. Mm. And I taught for 44 years at Chula Vista High School and Hilltop High School, and then uh, did some night teaching for the junior college adult program. And when you were a history But, teacher, uh, did, did you talk differently about the war because of your experience? No. No? I didn't tell him one thing. Oh, you didn't well, talk about one it? One thing I did. One thing I told him. When I was teaching U.S. history, and uh, uh, we had textbooks, and I was teaching right from the textbooks and my outline, and, and uh, on chapter 28, page 478, was a double-page picture of General Eisenhower and Lieutenant Strobel of the 502 Parachute Infantry with a cardboard uh, uh, number on it, and the number was 23. And uh, that was the aircraft that uh, they were going to get into. And they heard at, at, uh, at the airport, they heard that uh, Eisenhower was in the area, so everybody was out wanting to see General Eisenhower. And uh, he came up and talked to Lieutenant Strobel. And part of the conversation was uh, uh, about fishing and and uh, whatnot, uh, that, uh, and, and hunting in Michigan. And uh, that that uh, that uh, incident was photographed and it was made into a postage stamp. Mm. And the postage stamp is non-existent now, but I got six of them. And uh, uh, I, for the most part, have given most of them away uh, and kept my two for remembrance. But uh, years later, when that postage stamp was finally uh, taken out of existence, evidently the daughter of, uh, or rather the granddaughter of one of the uh, fellows pictured in, uh, close to General Eisenhower, he was off of the left shoulder of uh, Lieutenant Strobel with big ears, and his eyes intensely focused on General Eisenhower. And, uh, uh, She wanted to know what was going on in that picture, so she sent me a letter uh, in detail of what uh, she thought might be going on, and it was uh, not too much accuracy there. So I took that book to class with me. I opened it up, and I showed the students that. They were thrilled about it, and I, I told them, I'm going to send this book to Lieutenant Strobel, and have him write exactly across the page exactly what happened and what was going on there. So about two weeks later, I got the book back, and uh, I showed him, and they, were, they enjoyed that. And uh, then three weeks after that, uh, I asked Lieutenant Strobel to write in, in detail, absolute total detail, what was taking place uh, in that picture. And he did it, and I sent that uh, letter to the granddaughter of the fellow that I just described. And that was a closure for her.
and she needed somebody to tell her what had taken place because uh, uh, he has, it was had been later he was killed. Mm. So that's that's a really quick story about that one, and I still remember all the detail that took place there. I never told him another word about what took place, and uh, I've been to so many reunions that uh, all of my students asked me about my military activities and uh, what took place here and there. So uh, I, I, at the reunion, I would tell them a little bit more about it. And that was it. They got the rest of it through the publicity that I got. Uh, there were articles written about me for me and, uh, in a Wall Street Journal and uh, the, uh, some of the most elegant uh, magazines in, in, in France. Uh, the king and queen invited Brenda and me to come to uh, uh, London for a ceremony. A French general uh, who was re residing in a uh, home just across the Seine River opposite the uh, uh, Tower of London wanted me to come to lunch with him. So <laughs> it's been going like that. And I had 46 interviews and nearly a, uh, a documentary. So I've been pretty busy and pretty much exhausted by the whole thing. Yeah. Do you think we, we do enough still to remember your brothers in arms and what you did? Uh, oh, yeah. It's been a reversal of what has happened from the Korean and the Vietnamese War. Uh, for the most part, the, the, our soldiers were spit upon by when they got back home. And then the, the American public now has realized that, that uh, they were in gross error and they should have treated these uh, soldiers a lot better. So there's been a complete reversal. In fact, just, just this last year, an admiral and I stood at a bell at 6.44 p.m. on June 6th, and uh, I rang the bell for uh, uh, 15 seconds and turned the bell over to the admiral, and he rang it for 15 seconds in remembrance of all of those who did not return. Mm. And so there have been many other activities that have taken place, tours that we've gone on for so many different ways in different places all over Europe that I was uh, uh, adopted by Tracy Lamont about uh, 37 kilometers northeast of Paris. I was a mayor for the day in Carentan. Uh, I met General Miley, who was in command of... Uh, uh, 157,000 American military personnel. He was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and uh, I had a talk with him. And he didn't answer any of my questions. He's not used to talking to uh, uh, low-level uh, personnel, such as staff sergeants. But uh, in between those two, then after I was led up to the grandstand and, and mentioned and talked to General Miley, the uh, um, French national anthem was being played, and I turned and faced the uh, the music. And just to my left was the commanding officer, a two-star general of the 101st Airborne Division. And uh, he said to me, well, you said a lot of good things to the general, General Miley. Why didn't you say the good things to me? And I was stunned and dumbfounded, and, and I didn't know what to say. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and then a... Uh, 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 in a jeep on the way to 
the Cedar City of Carrington, uh, a little girl about uh, 12 years old stepped off from the curb and uh, walked right up to the Jeep and gave me a high five. And uh, a photographer took that picture. And it became the, po- the poster picture of the year for France. Did you see it? Yes, I did. It's nice. <laughs> yeah, that, was, uh, that was something sensational. But I'm trying to find her name and her address so I can uh, write her a letter. What, what would be your message to uh, those new generations, young people for the future? I would tell them to stand firm. They know how to do it. Uh, they have been put under such pressure for so long that they know how to conduct themselves now. And for the most part, uh, uh, decision-making, make it and stick with it. And then determine five different occupations that explore each one of those for the best uh, activities that they could develop because they're going to move fast in their, their life from this point on. Time is moving on. The Third World War has already begun. Yeah. Are you afraid for uh, the future of peace and liberty? Well, that's always been under democracy. Those are always the threats mm-hmm. because people have uh, the rights that they think that uh, are un- that they, they can control and uh, they do not have the control that they think. They've got the right to life, liberty, and property under due process of law and protected by a writ of habeas corpus. Only where it can be taken away, it, it, uh, a situation has to develop that threatens the public welfare and the well-being of all the citizens of the community. So it's, uh, we got a bunch of people here in the United States that want to protest. Uh, and, you know, okay, they can do it peacefully. If they, they don't do it peacefully, then uh, they're arrested and uh, they'll be tried. So well, democracy is a living document for the most part and, and, and a, a way of life for the most part that, that we're very familiar with. And sometimes we take advantage of it. We got to be careful of that. Well, in France, we are free thanks to you and we are eternally grateful for what you did. Well, we thank you very much for that uh, comment. <laughs> uh, it, It's, it's, it's hard to relive those because those were the most formidable period. That was the most formidable period in our life for the most part. The most formidable and that dominates a lot of our thinking and decision making it. What we do, when we do it and how we do it. And uh, the solidarity between the French and the uh, Americans is, uh, is one permanent thing now for the most part. Mm. So I'm, I'm about 50 to 55% French myself and didn't discover that until a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and you must be very uh, looking forward to coming back here uh, next summer. Are you, are you planning oh, yeah. on, on jumping again? Yeah, if, they, if they'll let me for the most part, or they may not even uh, let me uh, uh, jump. Uh, but I could jump here in the United States and do any commemorations I wanted, but it, uh, it would be uh, 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 a commemorative one to go to Tracy Lamont, where they adopted me as a citizen, uh, an honorary citizen, and I visited the gravesite 
of my great-great-great-grandmother. Mm. Her name was Adeline. Well, hopefully you can jump again next summer. That would be fantastic to see you again do that. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, if I do it, I'll do it when I'm uh, 101. Mm. I'll be 99 in two weeks. Oh, wow. And then uh, August 15, uh, the next year, I'll be 100. And you'll jump to celebrate it. Yes, that's the idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll keep jumping until I reach uh, 101. Wow. <laughs> Now, if that, uh, if, if that comes true, okay, that's fine. If it doesn't, then uh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. I may not be alive by that time. Who knows? You you have a lot of energy left. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, thank you so much for your time. It's really appreciated. Uh, well, thank you. You're welcome. I'm happy to do that. I hope it'll fill your bill and you're, uh, uh, you're happy with them. Yeah, yeah. And thank, thank you so much for sharing all this. And, and, and most of all, thank you so much for everything you did for for us for our freedom for france and uh and peace yeah you're quite welcome if we have to do it again we'll do it <sighs> hopefully we won't come to that but <laughs> thank you <No>. so much <laughs> thank you for calling i appreciate your interest have a nice day and see you next summer in normandy i hope okay that's that's a good that's a good uh, uh plan okay <laughs> bye now bye tom That's it for today. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tom Rice. So, I'd like to say see you next month, but to be honest, this is a very busy time for me these days with the book's release worldwide and a new and very secret project I'm working on right now. So, there will be more episodes. One of them is even recorded already, but I don't know when I'll release them. Probably sometime in the spring i don't know all i know is that you don't want to miss them so make sure you have subscribed to the channel that you follow till victory on facebook or instagram so that you're sure to be notified when the next episode airs see it as the end of the first season but many great surprises are yet to come In the meantime, do not hesitate to reach out to me to let me know what you think about the show, about the book. Please let the world know about it and put a few stars in your Amazon review if you get Till Victory from them. And, well, stay safe out there. And stay positive. If you listen to this podcast from the start or read the book... You'll know that mankind has been through so much worse. And for these guys who are still jumping from airplanes for their 100th birthday, future used to be dark and hopeless. This will end eventually. Till next time, au revoir.